So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus was between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has bore witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe." For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. 
So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of God. Thanks, Eleni. Well, before we come to this passage, let's bow our heads one more time uh, and pray for the Spirit's presence uh, and, and help. Holy Spirit, we have already invoked your presence, um, and we have done that because of your promises to be present uh, whenever two or more are gathered uh, in, in your name. And as we have said uh, in many different ways already today uh, and, and over the years, um, it is only because of your promises um, that we are able uh, to come into your presence and have any expectation um, that you would that you would be with us and that it would be for our good, that it would be for our blessing uh, and, and not for our cursing, that it would be to build us up and not to destroy us. Um, but those are your promises. Uh, it is your promise uh, that your word does not return uh, to you void when you send it out. Um, it is your promise. Uh, it is Jesus' promise that we read a few weeks ago uh, that you, Holy Spirit, uh, would bring to mind everything uh, that he taught us. Uh, and so we pray uh, as we come to this passage that you would give us eyes to see uh, and ears to hear. Uh, what you would say to us. Father, you know um, that as a people, uh, we are coming before you uh, with griefs, uh, with anxieties, uh, with many concerns, which again, you have commanded us, not just promised, but commanded uh, that we would lay them before you because you care for us. Um, Heavenly Father, uh, we cry out uh, together with all your people, um, for your church in Nashville, uh, for families uh, who have been stricken with uh, a tragedy that is unimaginable, that none of us wants to contemplate, but which you, um, precisely in the passage that we just read, uh, have not stood far away from, but have drawn nearer than we could possibly imagine. And so we pray for comfort, and we pray for peace, uh, and we pray, um, Father, that, that you will make yourself known uh, as a God who is near to the brokenhearted. Father, for those of us in the room uh, who have friends uh, who have been directly impacted um, by the shooting that took place earlier this week, we pray that you would give us words to speak um, both to and with our friends and, and words of prayer uh, to lift up to you. Uh, we don't know how to pray as we ought but it's your character always to teach us how to pray and always to bring us uh, to our knees before you. Uh, and so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would enliven our hearts and make us a people of prayer. Father in heaven, uh, we long uh, for peace uh, and for justice, and we long for things to be the way that they are supposed to be. We long for you to overcome uh, the curse of the fall that we have brought on ourselves. And so we cry out to you with your people, how long? And we thank you, we thank you um, that because of the resurrection, because Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of many, uh, we can confidently say, not long, that you will come again and you will put all things right. Father, please help us to fix our eyes on these things 
uh, now uh, and in the days and the weeks ahead. Um, be with us now as we come before your word. I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, again, it is Palm Sunday, um, the first Sunday of Holy Week. Um, there's something really wonderful and beautiful and precious um, about uh, a calendar that walks us through the story of the gospel, uh, that puts time itself into the service of telling us that story every year from Advent through Easter and on to Pentecost. Um, and there's something really wonderful about this week in particular where we can experience day by day in real time uh, and, and, and think about what each day was like, Sunday and Monday, um, come together uh, on Good Friday, come back together on, on Easter. Um, I want to read to you a, a sonnet. You already heard uh, the, the, the scripture uh, from, from Zechariah, that prophecy um, that, uh, that spoke of our king coming, um, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Um, here's a sonnet written for, for Palm Sunday. This is by a, a British poet um, by the name of Malcolm Geit, uh, who's written uh, a whole series of sonnets uh, for the entire church year. Uh, this is the one that he wrote for Palm Sunday. Now to the gate of my Jerusalem, the seething holy city of my heart, the Savior comes. But will I welcome him? O oh, crowds of easy feelings, make a start. They raise their hands, get caught up in the singing, and think the battle won. Too soon they'll find the challenge, the reversal he is bringing, changes their tune. I know what lies behind. The surface flourish that so quickly fades, self-interest and fearful guardedness. The hardness of the heart, its barricades, and at the core, the dreadful emptiness of a perverted temple. Jesus, come, break my resistance, and make me your home. What I love about that sonnet um, is how uh, the poet Geit places himself uh, right into the story, and that's a good thing for us to do, uh, to place ourselves into the story um, of, of this week. Um, I would encourage you, I'm going to plug prayer a couple times uh, today, I would encourage you towards this uh, daily uh, coming together uh, to pray, uh, so as to mark uh, each day together. You know, spend a, spend a week thinking through this story together, and I think this will change you. Um, what I want us to look at as we look at this passage today um, is the way that John, um, as he narrates the end of Jesus' life as he puts before us the glory that he's been talking about for the entire gospel, right? Jesus has been saying, it's not yet my hour to be glorified until now it is. It is the hour for him to glorify it. And as John puts that in front of us, um, he uses the scriptures that were already written uh, to point us uh, to everything that is happening uh, in, this, in this week. Uh, to point us uh, to the Passover and the way it was pointing ahead to Jesus, to point us to Good Friday and even to point us um, to Easter. When Paul talks about what the gospel is, 
uh, at its core. He emphasizes um, how it was all laid out in the scriptures, how everything was according to the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Everything that God is doing uh, here uh, in, in this gospel, what we're looking at today, um, was always the plan. It was written about long beforehand. Um, everything is happening here according to the scriptures. And I want us to see how John uses those scriptures uh, to point us to what God has done in the past in order to remind us um, to put our hope in what he will do for the future. We talked about this a little bit today in, in adult ed. We looked at the end of, of the books of the kings, right, as the people are going off into exile um, and, 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 and talked about how for those people at that time, you know, they couldn't yet see what we can see. They couldn't yet see the resolution that would come uh, in, in Christ. And for, the, for them, it would be of first importance to remember the promises that God had made in order to have hope for what he would do. And we're in the same position now. Um, we find ourselves being able to look back on what God has done um, as we read about it here. And it's vitally important that we do that in order to have hope for what he will do in the future. Um, as we're looking at this glory, as we're looking at the glory of the cross, at the glory of Jesus' death, at the glory of his resurrection. Um, this is the prime example for us, uh, living at the time that we live, of what God talks about in Psalm 78, when he says that the reason that you tell these stories, the reason that you tell them to your children and remind them again and again of what God has done is so that they should set their hope in God, so that they should not forget the works of God and therefore be able to obey his commandments, right? It's always that order. We have to remember what God has done in order to hope in him, and then we'll be able to live lives of faithfulness. So let's take a look at this. As we begin uh, in this passage, they take Jesus, and he goes out bearing his own cross. Um, this would have been typical of a Roman crucifixion. So... You know, if you've, if you've ever seen um, depictions of the crucifixion, sometimes they kind of exaggerate the height of the, the cross. Um, Jesus would not have been very far off the ground. There would have been a wooden stake that was always in the ground, but he would carry the horizontal uh, bar. Um, he would carry it himself. It was, it, was, it was part of the punishment. It was part of the humiliation that you would carry your own cross. Um, at which point, his hands would either have been tied or as we read, nailed uh, to that bar, and it would have been attached uh, to, the, to the vertical post. Um, this was a deliberately horrific way uh, to be executed. Um, this was intended to be as physically agonizing as possible. Um, crucifixion is a death by exposure. Um, the, the one who's crucified is simply left out on the elements uh, until, until they're dead. Um, death normally comes by, by asphyxiation. Um, 
if you go and hang from a bar um, and just hang there for a while, you will start to realize it starts getting very hard to breathe because uh, your body is, you know, your, 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 your lungs are being crushed under the weight of your own body. Um, and, and that eventually is, is what happened. The reason, if you've ever seen paintings um, or, or depictions of crucifixion, sometimes you'll notice a little platform under Jesus' feet, and the reason that that would be there um, was so that he could hold himself up uh, a bit longer. Um, but that wasn't there for relief. That was to prolong the agony. That was to make it take longer. Um, so this is deliberately as physically agonizing as it can be, and also as humiliating as it can be. Um, Jesus has been stripped um, and is now being exposed not only to the physical elements, but to the eyes of everyone, right? Rome does this in order to say, this is what happens to insurrectionists, right? This is what happens to anyone who would claim to be a rival of Caesar's of of any kind. Um, For the Jews, on the other hand, they would see this as being as clear a sign as possible that this could not be God's Messiah. Because no Messiah of God, no, no, no favored son of, of God could possibly be treated like this, right? So on both sides, um, this, this would just be the, the ultimate defeat uh, for, for Jesus. Um, and yet, and yet, one final stroke of irony uh, in, in John's gospel um, is that inscription that Pilate writes, right? He writes, the king of the Jews. And the, and the Pharisees come to him and say, no, 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 don't say the king of the Jews. Say, he said he was the king of the Jews. That's the charge, right? And, and Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. Um, he probably does that just because, I mean, if you've, you've picked up on his, his character, um, he's just mad. Uh, you know, he, he's been put in a position he doesn't want to be put in. Um, you know, in, in order to maintain the peace, um, he's, he's handing over a man for execution that he doesn't really think has done anything wrong. Um, he's, he's sort of being uh, manipulated and dominated by the people that he's supposed to be over. Um, and so you can see what he says as just being sort of an act of spite. Leave me alone. What I've written, I've written. Um, and yet it functions as another example of irony in the book of John, um, as someone says something that is far more true than they realize. Because in John's depiction, as John understands what's happening, this is not a defeat at all. This is not the defeat of an insurrectionist or of a would-be Messiah. This is a coronation. This is a glorification. This is Jesus being lifted up, not to be humiliated, but to draw all men to himself, as he said he would uh, earlier. You can see that um, in the fact that from the cross, look at what Jesus is doing from the cross. Um, So first of all, in verse 30, uh, it it, it says, um, it it says that when Jesus dies, it says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Notice how he's the agent there. He decides when to die. Um, And he is dying, by the way, much faster than you would expect. Uh, You you can see how the Romans are kind of surprised to come and and find him already dead later. Um, He decides it's finished. He decides the work is done. 
he decides to give up his spirit. He, he is doing exactly what he said he could do back in chapter 10 um, when he said that he was the one who had authority to lay down his life of his own accord. He said, no one's going to take my life from me. I give up my life of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. Um, you can also see him acting as a king, as from the cross, um, he's caring for his people. He's, he's, he's making arrangements for their future. He's, he's changing their relationships, right? He's redefining who they are in relationship to each other. Um, verses uh, 24 to, to 27 um, or excuse me, I guess 25. Uh, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her uh, to his own home. Um, one of the things about having Jesus as our head, uh, about having Jesus as our king, is that it redefines our relationships to each other. Um, that if we are his subjects, uh, if we are members of, of his body, um, then we are redefined uh, as being brothers and sisters. Uh, and we're enabled, just as he said he had authority to lay down his life, and then later on, he said to his disciples, I have already laid you down in order that you would lay down your lives for one another. Um, it is because Jesus is king, it is because he is glorified um, that we are enabled to lay down our lives for each other, uh, that our relationships to each other are redefined uh, and remade. Um, it, it, is this, it is this great irony. So this is one question for us. Um, do we understand Jesus in this way? Do we understand him as our king? Do we understand him as our head? Um, do we look at his life and the way that he laid down his life for us um, as giving us the capacity to, in turn, lay down our lives for one another? Has that change taken place uh, in us? Um, that would be one question for us. Do we see him? Uh, as our king uh, in, in that way. Um, as I mentioned, there are a lot of passages here uh, that, that, that John is referring to. I actually don't have time uh, to get to, to all of them, although this is my second plug for morning prayer. We will use these passages uh, in prayer this week. So, for instance, Psalm 22, right? Um, when... Uh, when it says uh, in, in, verse, in verse 24, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's Psalm 22. We'll look at that. Um, Jesus uh, saying, I thirst, seems to be a reference to Psalm 69, uh, and, we'll, and we'll take a look at that. Um, but I wanted to look at a couple in particular. They start coming really fast and furious right in verses 36 and 37, right? So after Jesus has died... Uh, after he has given up his spirit, after uh, the Romans have found that he is already dead and have, have pierced his side, blood and water comes out. Um, that, by the way, may be a reference to Exodus, water from the rock. Paul in 1 Corinthians certainly think, seems to think that the rock was Christ, 
so that may be an illusion there. But, but more explicitly, what John actually says is, these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Two of them. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's going to point us towards Maundy Thursday. And they will look on him whom they have pierced, and that's going to point us at Good Friday. Let's, let's look at those in turn here. So first of all, not one of his bones uh, will be broken. Um, that's a quote from the psalm that Samuel read uh, earlier in our service, from, from Psalm 34. But it seems to also um, be pointing at the Passover, uh, because if you look at the instructions uh, for the Passover in Exodus, um, it talks about how the lamb uh, can't have any of its bones broken. People are frequently people frequently remark that when you when you look at the description of the the Passover meal uh, that that Jesus celebrated uh, with his disciples uh, at that at that Last Supper, there was no lamb on the table. Right? And there was no lamb on the table because the lamb was the one standing there. Uh, Jesus himself had already been identified uh, by John the Baptist as the lamb of God, uh, the one who takes away the sins uh, of the world. Um, that event, the event that the Passover was pointing at, um, the exodus, right? God's great liberation of, of, of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, that above Everything else was the thing that, that Israel was meant to look back at, uh, was meant to remember. Um, this was another thing we talked about in, in Adult Ed, um, that when one of the, almost the last king in Judah finds the book of the law, and apparently they haven't had it this whole time, finds Deuteronomy, um, and, and is fairly shocked at how far off they are uh, from keeping uh, the law, it says that they celebrated the Passover, and this appears to be the first time that they have celebrated the Passover since before the conquest itself, right? So you go all the way from Joshua celebrating the Passover um, through all of this history in Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, no Passovers. Think about what that would mean. If the core of their identity Someone in, in adult ed in class today put it this way. If the core of their identity was that they were a people who had been delivered out of slavery, then to not celebrate the Passover, to not tell that story year after year, would mean that they had forgotten who they were. They had lost their identity. One of the reasons that it is so important for us to tell this story uh, to do it in every way that we can, again, including using a calendar uh, to do it, um, so that we don't forget who we are. Um, the Exodus told the people of Israel that they were God's chosen possession, saved out of slavery, uh, and then brought into relationship with him before uh, they could have chosen it. Christians, do you know who you are? Do you know that you are beloved? Do you know that you are forgiven? Do you, do, do you know that before you're anything else, before you're born, you are the joy that was set before Christ for which he endured this cross? 
That is who you are. We need to tell this story to ourselves as often as we can so that we don't lose our identity. The other scripture that John points us to is in Zechariah 12. Um, this is one of my favorites. Or, or it's, it's one of my favorites for kind of a weird reason, right? So they will look on him whom they have pierced. That comes out of Zechariah 12. We'll look at more of that in prayer this week. Um, one of the reasons I really love this, it's, it's for a weird reason. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, there's a chapter about repentance. And it says, repentance is an evangelical grace, which is kind of old language. What in the world does that mean? Well, evangelical means good news, right? Gospel, good news. So repentance is a good news grace. And if you say, well, why is that? There's a little footnote, and it directs you to Zechariah 12, to this verse. They will look on him whom they have pierced. What on earth is going on there? Why would, why would that mean repentance is a good news grace? Here's why. If you want to look at one thing to get the whole gospel, if you want to look at one place that will tell you about the magnitude of sin, all of the bad news, and the magnitude of God's grace, you look at the cross. There's that hymn that we sing, right? Ye who think of sin but lightly are supposed the evil great. Here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the word the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. It is sometimes easy to think of sin as being a light thing, as not being that big a deal. Um, there's a wonderful moment in uh, something that Anselm wrote. Anselm, the church father, he wrote this, this, this uh, it's actually a dialogue called, Why Did God Become Human? Right? Why the Incarnation? So there's this dialogue, he's discussing it. And at one point, his, his, his conversation partner, they've come to talking about the crucifixion, and, 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 the, and the guy he's talking to says, this does not make sense. It does not make sense that God would not only take on our flesh, like not only become finite and vulnerable and subject to pain, but that he would actually suffer this? Why? And Anselm's answer is, I think you have not yet considered the weight of sin. You're not understanding how heavy the load is. I know there's some of you here who do know the weight of sin. You, you do know how damaging it can be. Uh, you, you, you do know, we, we sometimes talk about how sin has a blast radius. This is this amazing thing that sin is committed and, and, and you think, okay, so it just damaged this one person or these two people, and then time passes and you realize, no, no, it's impacting them too, and then more time passes. Years go by, and you keep seeing these ripple effects. And it's just unimaginable how much damage sin can do in our lives. And, and if you are in that category, if you do know the weight of sin, look at the cross and it will tell you you are not crazy. Sin is that bad. It is that damaging. It, it, it meant the death of the Son of God. But 
we also look at the cross to see, and much more, much more to see the magnitude of God's grace. Because as heavy as the weight of sin is, as great as that is, his grace is more. His mercy is more. Because in the death of Christ is the death of death. It is the removal of death's sting, is the defeat of sin. Sin hasn't just been explained or set aside. It has been defeated. It has no power over us. And so in Zechariah 12, it says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. Uh, and it says that they will mourn. But that mourning, that repentance, that's the beginning of turning towards our salvation. It's the beginning of turning towards the one who has borne that weight for us, borne it in its place. And that's what makes repentance a good news grace. Because it's not just turning away from the sin that we have committed, it is turning towards our Savior who has borne it for us. The last thing that I want to mention, this final scene, you might expect that, that John would go straight from this glory, this sign of signs, and he, he does take a moment to really emphasize how important this sign is, right? Verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe, right? He, he pauses in the middle of this story to remind you why he's telling it. It's so that you might believe. Um, and you might think that he would go straight from this to the resurrection, but there's this one last scene, the burial. Um, we meet Joseph of Arimathea, uh, a rich um, member of the, of the Sanhedrin, apparently a secret disciple of, of Jesus. We see Nicodemus again, right? And it ends. They take his, his body down uh, as they need to uh, before the Sabbath. And they lay him in the tomb. And it just ends in this chapter with, they laid Jesus there. On the one hand, John is emphasizing he's buried. He's really dead. Uh, this was not something fake. Um, but at the same time, stop and think about, again, the march of actual time. I don't know what you do with Saturday of Holy Week. Because um, we don't really have much to do with it, right? There's a Good Friday service, and then there's Easter, and then in between, I don't know, it's a Saturday, right? I'll probably be at a soccer game. Um, I don't know what you'll be doing, but there's this whole day. There's just this whole day in between. I want to encourage you to mark that day this week. At least stop and think about the fact that there was a whole day of just waiting. Um... As we prayed for Nashville um, on, on Wednesday of this past week, one of the things that we said is the hardest thing to imagine. The shooting took place on Monday, and the hardest thing in the world is to imagine being a parent of one of those children who were killed and waking up on Tuesday morning. Um, you've probably had this experience. Something horrible happens. And, and the next morning, you wake up, and, and just for a second, when you're not really awake yet, you don't quite remember. And then as you do, it feels like, that must have been a dream. And then, and I have no idea how much time this is actually taking. It's all distorted. 
but it just lands on you. That's real. It, it happened. That is part of the way the world is now. And for something that horrible, for a time, it's the lens through which you see everything. The whole world has changed. Um, we can pretty easily run from Good Friday to Easter because we know it's coming, right? But there was Saturday. It was a whole day of just waiting. It was a whole day of just sitting in the reality of Jesus being gone, of being dead. And, you know, dead is pretty gone. Dead makes it feel like the story is over. Um, dead leaves you with only one possible kind of hope. It only leaves you with hope for resurrection. Um, and who could hope for that? The, um, the quote that I put on the front of the bulletin uh, this week are, are lyrics for a song um, that I love by, by Andrew Peterson. Uh, it's, called, it's called God Rested. And what I love about it, I and mean, you can see it right there in the chorus, is how he brings together the week of creation and the last week of Jesus' life and says, on the sixth day, God said the work was finished. It happened twice. Sixth day, God said the work was finished, and then he rests. And what is it that you're waiting for? You're waiting for that eighth day. You're waiting for this whole new creation that lies beyond anything that you know. You're waiting for a world to be remade. Um, some of us are here, we need that kind of hope in our lives. Some of us are in the middle of stories that feel over and hopeless. Um, we need to tell ourselves this story. We need to use this week to do it together so that we can remember who we are. If we are anything, we are resurrection people. We are people who hope for salvation from the outside that we could not fashion for ourselves. Um, the fact that this table is in front of us now in the midst of our wilderness um, is both a sign of what is to come um, but it is also nourishment for the already but not yet that we're in now. So before we come to this table, let's give thanks.